I'd be putting James Milner in alongside Jordan Henderson. The players need to adapt. They need to stop doing these sorts of things because they knew what they were signing up to. The new rules, they turn the game that we know and love into a game of Sabutio. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Rematch podcast. I'm Adam, your host this week. We have a full house alongside me and Sam, Dan, Cam and Ollie. Today we'll discuss Liverpool. Diego Jota's arrival at the Reds has seen a few things that Roberto Firmino should be dropped from the starting eleven. Is that an opinion you share? We'll also discuss the handball rule. Is it bringing consistency to football or is it making a mockery? Also coming up, how big a problem is heading in football? Is there a link between it and brain injuries in later life? And in this week's feature, following a miraculous FA Cup game on Sunday seeing Crawley Town win 6-5 at Torquay United, I ask what's the most goals you've seen in the game live and what's the latest you've seen a goal scored? All that to come, so stick with us on the Rematch podcast. Right, are we all ready and happy? Wait, 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 wait. I can't see anyone. What? Does that matter? <laughs> well, this is Zoom in 2020, isn't it? Oh, no, it's sorry, 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 sorry. How have you been, lads? How's lockdown two treating us? Well, good as you can be, I guess. But, uh, I mean, I've just had a spicy curry, Adam, to be fair. So, I'm a bit, uh, <laughs> I've got a bit of heartburn. <laughs> to be honest. To say that I've just had a curry. <laughs> You've had a curry as well? What curry did you have, Ollie? Uh, it was just a karma, which I was quite disappointed about, because it tasted of nothing, thanks to my mum's cocky. Oh, oh, oh. listen to this. I can assure she definitely does not listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't really like curry, to be honest. I had some pasta earlier, though. Oh, so, so did I. That's slap on that oh, one. Here we lovely. go. Right, oh, can, I go get a can I go oh. and get it ready? Can I go and get it ready? Can I go and get ready? Oh, my days. Are, are you ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, then, lads, let's get to it. Let's talk about Liverpool. And to start with, Roberto Firmino and Diego Jota, since the former Wolves man's come in, he's caused a lot of Liverpool fans, and perhaps a lot of football fans, to think that he should be replacing Firmino in the starting eleven, even though that front three, that infamous front three now of Mane, Salah, Firmino, seem to be the best front three in world football. Does anyone else agree that Jota's perhaps displacing Firmino, or should be displacing Firmino in that front three? I don't want it to be a case of almost getting this, I don't know, shiny new toy in Diego Jota and then completely forgetting about Firmino, because I think, I think that's quite unfair. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen some people suggest that he's finishing. I, I think that's just ridiculous. He's, he's just a very good player out of form. Um, he scored nine league goals last year, which is a respectable amount, especially when he's playing quite well. We obviously know he's, he's not the type of player to score goals. He's more of a chance creator. Um, but this year, for me, he's just looked completely off it. He looks two yards off the pace. And I think the fact that Klopp took him off before the hour mark last night was a big indication of how he's played this season. And it wouldn't surprise me if if we keep with that three up top, if Jota does replace Firmino in the long run. I mean, I'm slightly a bit more critical than Oli. I'm kind of questioning what he's bringing to this Liverpool side at the moment. He looked more than, for me, a couple of yards off the pace last night. And I've, I've done a bit of research into his statistics behind the past few few seasons. And 17, 18, I'm right thinking, is the Mane, Salah, Firmino the first season of that trio. And he got 15 goals and seven assists in that season. Now, I know you're saying that he's not a goal scorer and he does kind of link that play up. But then again, this season, he's only managed two assists so far. And you look at numbers and I don't think it backs up the quality that people 
thought that Firmino had. I mean, we talked about him at one point a season or two ago about him being one of the most underrated players in the Premier League. I think it's kind of become the flip side and he's now one of the most overrated players in the Premier League. And you look at Jota this season, he's already got three goals. So he's already three times as better as Firmino in the statistics. And he's only just been brought in. So he hasn't even had time to get used to the team around him. Um, Liverpool, I think it speaks volumes that they don't have a traditional striker in the backup. Um, you look at Divock Origi, who's sat on the suspension, is yet to make a single appearance in the Premier League this season. I wonder whether Klopp still trusts him and I wonder whether uh, Firmino has got that competition for players that he, I think he needs. Diego has scored more Liverpool goals in 2020 than Firmino. And that stat speaks absolute volumes for me. I know Firmino is uh, obviously a false nine defensive striker, playmaking Trequista. But the point is <laughs> that he just doesn't score anywhere near enough goals for a forward-thinking player. Like Salah and Mane aren't strikers. They don't play out-and-out out number nines. They float around as well. So I think Bobby's got to chip in with more goals there. But my question is, can't they both fit into one system together? Why is it one or the other? Why, why can't Liverpool switch to, to their current needs? Because they've got an unbelievable squad, Liverpool. I know they're missing Van Dijk and Fabinho's dropped at the back. But if you stick... Henderson and Fabinho holding midfielder, and I know you've got Thiago as well, who could slot in very easily aside Henderson. But then you can put Bobby, Salah, Mane and Jota all ahead of them. Well, we saw that against Man City at the weekend, didn't we, really, when they played almost a 4-4, especially in the first half. And they had Mane and Jota on the wings with Salah and Firmino up front. And I think the, the signing of Jota especially... Uh, allows Klopp to move away if he needs to from that 4-3-3. You can almost play a 4-2-3-1, a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-4. You gives him that um, adaptability and that versatility that I think Liverpool need going forward, especially considering that Origi hasn't made a Premier League appearance. Uh, they've got no backup striker. They don't trust him. Um, I think the one big injury away from having a striker crisis up front, to be honest, um, I think Jota's needed for that versatility. I think if you're going to play that formation... Is in a four-two-three-one or a four-four-two or four-two-four or whatever you want to call it or play. I think you looked at Wijnaldum in that midfield, and he was the weak link. I thought personally against Manchester City. So, and there was questions on the on the Sky Sports panel about whether he can actually play in a two uh, or a two central midfielders if he's better in a three. So it is about finding that balance. It's not just if we're going to change the system to try and get them both in, to try and maybe get the best out of Firmino or take the pressure off Firmino. It's not just about the forward line we need to think about. It's also the defensive side. And obviously you mentioned Fabinho playing in there, but obviously he's injured at the minute. I don't know how long Ollie will be able to tell me how long for. If, if uh, I think he's knows. back after the international break. Okay. Well, that's an option then. Um, but for me, against Man City, if he was going to change the way that they played, I'd be putting James Milner in alongside Jordan Henderson personally, just because I feel like he does offer a, a bit more experience probably playing in a two, in, well, in a in a two behind a four or two behind a three and then a one up front. And, you know, and like I say, he's, he's just a workhorse really and it's very cliche for James Milner, but I know Wijnaldum works hard, but for me, he just got dragged over. He didn't use that, he didn't use his experience enough, whereas I think James Milner has that, that extra edge over him. Oli, you mentioned about Firmino being subbed off yesterday on, on Sunday game against Man City. He's started eight games this season for Liverpool. He's been subbed off in seven of them. But last season, he started or featured in oh yeah, started, sorry, 34 
and got subbed off in 20, yet still made nine goals and eight assists. So is that actually fair to, to make that comment about him? If he played the 90 minutes week in, week out, like Manny and Salah tend to do, would his goal involvement actually be as high as those two? The thing is, with, with yesterday's substitution, I thought that the fact that it was before the hour mark, you don't usually see Firmino getting brought off that early in, in the game. Um, the fact it was for Shaqiri, a player that you can never really trust, he's a bit of a liability, especially if he's playing even as much as half an hour with Shaqiri. In, in terms of yesterday, I thought we looked quite good in that first half, except Firmino, he's just slowing everything down. And going back to the, the formation, the 4 2 3 1 that was tried recently, there's been a bit of it looks a bit puzzled at times, so it's going to take some getting used to. Um, and to be honest, if Firmino keeps dropping performances like that, I, I honestly can't see him as the, the long-term solution. And uh, yesterday just showed that even more for me. Do you not think, though, that a couple of seasons ago you were talking, well, he's, he's somewhere else, him. He looks, he looks like he's really on it. Do you not think he can get I, back I know to that? there's obviously a lot of jokes like you made earlier on Twitter about the type of player that he is, but he is the key in, in terms of I won't steal my jokes from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> He is the key in terms of that counter-pressing style that we play, but like Sam was saying, he just he just looks completely off the pace at the minute. I think he just needs a break from the first time, first team for a couple of games and then bring him back in and see how he does. Obviously, I'm not saying he's finished because he's only 29. Um, and you, you do hope he can rediscover that form, but at the minute, I am I'm really concerned. I mean, for me, I think that Firmino is still a, a really good player. I think he offers a lot to, to the team. I mean... I don't think it's fair to always base it off of stats. I mean, for me, he links the midfield and the attack very well. And even yesterday, there was times where he was dropping deep to the halfway line and he played passes forward. Is there an option that he could actually play a bit deeper? Because what I understand is why there's constant comparison between him and Jota. I think you can admire that Jota's a fantastic player and a really good signing, whilst at the same time, not as, that doesn't equal Firmino getting worse, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I know that for Hoffenheim, he used to play a lot deeper. Before he, he started off deeper, then he moved further forward. And then for Liverpool, he sort of adopted this completely new role altogether. But I, I agree with you there, Adam. I think that just because Jota's here doesn't mean we need to... I know it's very ironic because we are completely comparing the two right now. <laughs> but why do we need... What, what is the actual argument? Do we need to compare the two? Is it just because it's, it, it seems to be there's one position available and you can't drop... Um, Mane and you can't drop Salah. Yeah, but later on the like in the Premier League, they'll have Champions League games, they'll have cup games. So it's going to be a case of oh well, they need to rotate the squad anyway. They'll both get chances, and I have no doubt that they'll both score goals. That's exactly why I think Liverpool have gone out there and got a striker in in the summer. Look at Man United and the uh, strike force they've got, and yet they still brought in Edison Cavani as an, another alternative. If he doesn't trust Origi, and Firmino, like like I think the majority of us are saying hasn't performed at the heights we know, then Liverpool are struggling up front. I mean, you even sold Rian Brewster to Sheffield United, who was scoring goals in the Championship, with better players around him, might have kicked on another level and at least been an option off the bench if Firmino, like he is, isn't performing to the heights we know he can. I think Liverpool need another striker and might have to spend big in January as a, res as a result now because of it. I think, I think one of the big problems in terms of Origi was that the only options he had looked like Belgian clubs and he wanted to obviously game time at a big club somewhere like us or somewhere in a, in a top five league, not somewhere in Belgium, especially with the, um, the international competitions coming up. So we, we just couldn't 
get him out. I think if we had got him out and obviously Brewster as well, we might have looked to have got, got another striker in. But when we can't shift them players, we, we can't have an overload with Origi just doing nothing in the squad. Yeah, I disagree. I, th- I think that Liverpool, I've got the striking options. I think they've got loads of forwards, right? And they can all play in that striker position. So why do they need to go out and get a, an out-and-out striker when Liverpool have never played for years with an out-and-out striker? Yeah, it comes that went well. I, it sounds like to me that we're worrying about Liverpool here, and I don't think we should be. I think I think they can take care of themselves personally. You know, <laughs> the big boys. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. You know, but they are. But they but they've spent big for a reason. Yes, they've lost Van Dijk, but that. But we're not talking about the defence here, and they did only concede one to Man City, albeit on another day. I think De Bruyne puts in the penalty. But like like Dan said, they have got the striking options to cover uh, out of form Firmino. And we've listed a few options of formations they potentially could play to either get the best out of Firmino or to, to potentially give Firmino a break, a rest, or whatever he needs. Because clearly he's not, you know, obviously we've understood that he's not his best, but clearly there's something wrong there, whether it's maybe lockdown potentially affecting him. Obviously, we don't know. It's not necessarily an excuse because obviously that's the same for everyone. But we shouldn't worry about Liverpool because at the end of the day, they're still one of the top three. I haven't checked the table. Um, if they're still in the top three, which I'm pretty sure they are, I don't think they're top anymore. But that's where they should be at this stage of the season. They shouldn't be running away with it because at the end of the day, the Premier League is a fantastic league with lots of quality. We expect slip-ups. And at the end of the day, they didn't even slip up against City. So I think we should be praising them, actually, for doing as well as they have done when you, in theory, the way that we've, we've talked about it is that they're carrying a player like Firmino, really. So they're basically playing with 10 men against Manchester City. So VAR has brought in a few controversial subjects into our footballing lives, but a new one has arose over the past week or so in the handball rule. So the handball rule has changed to become lower down the arm, but that has now affected offside, in which I didn't think it would have personally affect offside. It wasn't a first thing that I thought of. However, We've seen two big decisions in the past two weeks. This week, with Patrick Bamford being given offside at a crucial point of the game when the game was only 1-0 to Crystal Palace. And then previously in a Merseyside derby where Sadio Mane um, was denied a late winner because he was offside before the ball was put into the back of the net. So I was just wondering, with this new handball change, I think we all agree... Well, actually, I, I don't know actually if we all agree. Do we all agree first that the handball rule should have been changed so that the arm, so that, or the top of the arm slash shoulder is now not handball, so you can potentially score with it. And then do we agree that that should also count to offside? Because personally, if I had to give my opinion, I think that the whole of the arm should not be included when it comes to offside. Because as you can see, Patrick Bamford especially, where he's not just leaning like Sadio Mane, he's pointing where he wants the ball. He can't now indicate to the striker where he wants the pass and when he wants it because he's sticking his arm out and it's offside. So I just wondered what everyone's thoughts were on that change affecting offside. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, you look at the Bamford incident. That was the... It looked so strange. It, it, you look at it and it was, it was onside. It, it looked so onside. But the rules have given the officials absolutely no choice whatsoever but to rule offside for it. And this is where the issue comes, isn't it? Because the only things that I think should be included in offside is the head and the feet. I think they're the only two things that should be included. 
the chest and the, and the armpit and everything like that, that doesn't, that, that should never be. If you're going, for, for example, if a cross comes in and you're ahead of front, uh, in front of the defender, then that, that for me, that's offside. But, and then if you're running through on goal and you're a foot in front of the defender, that's offside. But anything on your body, because that's just to do with running motion, isn't it? That should never be offside for me. That's, that's what I would change about it. Because at the minute, it just looks farcical. It really does. For me, you've looked at it two ways. I think there's an argument to say that as soon as you need to put on these dotted lines, you've you gone too far. And you, just, you have to just say you're onside if you need to get to millimetres with these dotted lines into the armpit, as Dan was saying. For me, though, the players have got to adapt. The Premier League voted unanimously to bring VAR in. They can't bring VAR in and then complain about it. They know pretty much knew how it was going to be. So, yes, it is quite natural, I would imagine, for a striker like Bamford to point where he wants the ball to go. However, you, a player now in the Premier League knows, if you do that, that you're making your body bigger and there's more chance of you being offside. You've got to trust that the players around you know where to put the ball, which they probably will. They'll, know, they'll see Bamford's run. I don't think you need to point. I think the ball would go where it goes without Bamford pointing. And the players need to adapt. They need to stop doing these sorts of things. Because for me, they haven't got an argument. They can't complain about it because they knew what they were signing up to. But sometimes it's only natural. Because it, not, not just the pointing, it's, it's if you're running. If you put one arm in front of the other one, you're running. That's a natural thing to do, isn't it? So it's not just a case of pointing. That's where the rules are wrong as well. Yeah, that's, the, that's what the problem was with Mane one, really. That it's just a natural lean as he's running to try and break the offside trap. Um, and what, like what Dan was saying there, it is a generational thing. It's not going to be something that Patrick Bamford can just get out of the habit of. It's going to be a case of that the next generation are going to be told, or have to be told, to not point, are going to have to incredibly watch each step that they make when they're on the defensive line. You know, it's not going to be something that, that experience, even Patrick Bamford, he's not an old, I don't know how old he is, but he's not, he's not old, is he, in terms of, He's, he's quite young actually in terms of footballing standards so you know he's not he's not going to he's not going to get out of that he's not going to get out of pointing for example Mane is not going to stop leaning to try and as he's running or jogging you know leaning forward or leaning to the side you know it's, it's going to be a generational thing I think for me I, I, I'm not dis- disagreeing with that and I do get your point but I don't get how they can complain when, they, when that happens I think it's bound for them to do that, but I don't think they have an argument to then say, well, I'm going to play as I would normally. However, if I do, I don't want this to be given as offside because they can't almost change the rules. That they, that I, don't think, I don't see how they can expect to, to bring VAR in and then just carry on playing the way they are. That's never going to work. I think the way we're going, though, it's going to end up that players are going to have to run with their arms by the sides to avoid... A, a stupid offside decision but it's not just the rule that I have a problem with it's the way that referees are using it and Craig Pawson yesterday for the Joe Gomez handball incident went over to the VAR decision sorry went over to the VAR machine had two looks at it in slow motion then gave the penalty didn't look at it in full time in real time that's a shocking use of VAR to go over to it look at it twice in slow motion that therefore it looks miles more like a deliberate handball. Joe Gomez, you can see if he plays on a few more frames, he's trying to get his arm out of the way. I think it's shocking from referees. Yeah, I agree with that because for that Bamford one, the VAR has a number of angles in which they can look at, and we've all seen the best one that they they thought was uh, that they thought showed Bamford off 
side. And then you look at the plot points and where they put it on Klein's arm and where they put it on Bamford's arm. They don't even match up at all. And that's not even taken into consideration Kuriati, who's blocked by Bamford. And it, it, it's, there's a good chance that his backside might have been playing Bamford on. So I, I don't think you can blame the actual VAR. I think it's just a level of officiating in this country that, that is a bigger problem in terms of making decisions. Is there a way to solve handball then? So obviously Dan mentioned that he thinks that it should only be the head and the feet that can be offside. Um, does anyone agree with that? I know that some countries have adopted a, a rule. I think it's Holland and Denmark where they have like 10 centimetre tolerance on, on offsides. But I think a rule like that, it creates just as much controversy because then you're questioning whether it's 11 centimetres, whether it's 9 centimetres. So I think no matter what ruling that comes into play, just like the diving um, discussion that we had last week. There's always going to be controversy with whatever rules you can bring in and, and no one's ever really going to be happy with them. One thing's for certain though, the new rules, they turn the game that we know and love into a game of Sabutio, just wooden players with no arms and limited movement. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Dan. I mean, I was reading a BBC article on this and it said something like 57% thought that the handball rule is ruining their experience of football. And I'm honestly surprised it's not more. The thing is, though, if last season there was, I mean, the one that springs to mind is the Trent Agan-Arnold one. I think it was against Tottenham, I think, at Anfield. Man City. Man City, that was it, Ollie, thank mm. you. That wasn't given. And people complaining that it's not consistent. We saw one the week before. I can't remember what that one was. It was very similar and we're still t- taking into account the word deliberate. These rule changes have made it consistent. We are seeing penalties given every time. And I don't think there's been one where it's not been given, where we thought, if it's right or wrong, that it should have been. So is that not better now we've got some consistency that we've been crying out for you know, for years, for years and years, we've been crying out for consistency. Now we've got it, and we're still not happy. Well, the thing is with the, the Gomez one yesterday, as soon as we saw that hit the hand of Joe Gomez, we almost all knew. It's never a penalty, in my opinion, but we all knew that it was going to be a penalty. So I suppose that level of consistency is something that we maybe do need, even if we're not going to be happy about it. Maybe even if it's not right, we just we just need that consistency for a bit rather than all this discussion about what's yeah, right. Because and what's at, yeah, because at one point, you've got to think back. God knows what year it was. Someone will correct me probably. But there was no offside rule. There was goal scroungers everywhere. And then all of a sudden, there was this offside rule. And I'm sure there was fans at the time thinking, I don't like this, there's less goals. So, but they all of a sudden got used to it. And then all of a sudden, offside's one of the best rules invented. I think it's just a case of getting used to it. Yes. The thing for me is VAR at the 2018 World Cup was when it was first really showcased to the world. And no one had any complaints about it because it was perfectly executed. We didn't have the 12 months that we had last season in the Premier League where referees wouldn't go to the uh, monitor pitch side. or They'd just have it in the rear. And referees at the World Cup would go straight over to the monitor, take the time to make the right decision, and the majority of the time get it right. Now we're seeing decisions, like we saw two at the weekend of Max Kilman and Joe Gomez, the handballs, where we're seeing referees go over to the pitch that wasn't happening 12 months ago that created more uncertainty, but they're going over. And then we're still seeing they get it wrong. That's surely poor officiating. So there isn't a clear and obvious answer really on what to do with ham- the handball rule or the offside rule, unfortunately. But 
as Dan said, I think we're all just going to have to get used to it. I don't think any of our opinions really do matter in the end. I don't think the FA are listening, unfortunately, to, uh, to implement these changes that we've suggested. But hopefully they are, and hopefully we can make football a better place. Make football great again. Mm. <laughs> oh, should have said that, shouldn't I? <laughs> The one topic that I've really seen comes to the forefront of football in the past couple of weeks is that of dementia and other brain-related diseases in the game. Obviously, we saw recently that Nobby Stiles sadly died after a battle with Alzheimer's, and then a couple of days later, news broke that said Bobby Charlton has now been diagnosed with dementia. There have been ways in which governing bodies have tried to tackle this issue. For example, earlier this year, the FA banned under 12s from heading the ball in training. I don't think anyone is going to suggest that we completely ban heading in football, but do we think more should be done to protect the later lives of current players? I remember, um, I think it was Jeff Astle died a few years ago from something similar. And he used to say that when he used to head the ball, because he was a player sort of 50s, that it, if it was raining, it would feel like he was heading a, a bag of bricks, is what he used to say. I think things have got a lot better because obviously the footballs have changed. They're not made of leather anymore. But I just, like, if you think about like another profession, if you worked in an office and someone threw you a pile of paper to put in the printer, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even think about hitting it with your head, would you? You know what I mean? It's just like, it seems like it's only football where you consider using your head. I want to work with you in office, that's all I'm saying. I would be tossing <laughs> them strip papers over you all the time, honestly. <laughs> I want to see you... Straight into Shredder. Full on, Massimo <laughs> Macaroni, straight into the bin, get in. <laughs> I think it's quite new research, isn't it, Ollie? So to go back to your question of what do we need to do, to implement these changes to better football and the link between dementia. Uh, I did a piece on it for my final major project and it was something like footballers are three and a half times more likely to have an issue regarding a neurodegenerative disease. And that doubles in terms of Parkinson's and they're five times more likely to get Alzheimer's. So there definitely is new studies that are coming out and showing that there is a link between dementia and football. And Adam was saying that, that he never heads a football. I mean, at 12 years old, I mean, I was quite tall for my age still then as I am now, and I never headed a football. So I can't really see the problem in terms of taking heading a football out of youth training. Um, I think we need to have a look at the studies that are going to come about in the next few years and act accordingly, but I think it's a good first step. Yeah, see, this is one of the misconceptions, I think, because you mentioned there about the heaviness of the ball. Obviously, that is a major problem because that is obviously impacting your head a lot more. The modern ball is actually lighter, and that means that it comes at you with more speed. And this, apparently, the research I've read is that the speed is what impacts it the most. In this day, it wouldn't hurt, but it'd still knock part of your brain to the other side of the skull temporarily because of momentum. So that's where, apparently where the problem is in, mod, in the modern game. Yeah, I think Dan's exactly right. If a child continues to have uh, continued bangs on the head, that would lead to damaged brain cells. So in terms of the studies, in the last two years, the PFA charity has ended 54 million. The chief executive, Gordon Taylor, has received over 4 million of that money and only £325,000 has been given to dementia and concussion research. As a trade union who should be protecting the integrity of football and protecting those in the trade, is, is this really acceptable? No, definitely not. I mean, it clearly needs a lot more evidence. I'm not saying it hasn't caused dementia, but we don't know directly if it's caused dementia yet, because obviously dementia and, and other uh, brain injuries happen later on in life. There's just not enough specific research out there, and I'm sure they'll be doing it now. 
you'd imagine that they'll be doing research constantly, MRI scans on younger footballers to see if there's a link now. And then, but the, the issue is that this is sort of something that happens later on in life. So it might be 50 years down the line when we really start to see the benefits of this research. And that's where the problem lies because nobody knows what to do now. So it's something that could drag over into our kids' generations. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? It's like what you're saying about with the, the lot of footballs down. Obviously, there are people saying that it can have a worse impact, but we don't actually properly know in practice. We can obviously we can do the research and et cetera and say that it's probably going to be worse. And that might be the case, but we but we actually won't know until these footballers have retired and not just retired, but maybe pensioners at that point. You know, so to actually get some results. And it's a sad way of doing it because of course you don't want people to get these you know, brain injuries and, and problems, et cetera. But it's the only way that we're going to find out, I think. I, don't, I say I'm, I'm not a scientist, as you could probably tell. Aren't you? But <laughs> <laughs> going back to the, the monetary problem with Ollie, that Ollie mentioned, you know, there isn't enough money in football to do enough of the right things. It seems like that certain individuals get money for, for just being in a role for and maybe don't deserve it and then that money doesn't go to grassroots football it doesn't go to uh, causes like this that obviously only want to do good so i think especially money wise they obviously needs to be more funding it that that's a given but we just got to think where's that where's that money going to come from especially in this in this climate that we're in at the minute the thing is though you can put all this money into the research and then say you get the results that there is a direct link between your brain injuries and your football, which is likely to happen. What do you do with that research? Are you really going to go and ban heading in football? What, what route do they take from there? Does anybody have any suggestions at all? I don't think it's a case of changing rules. I think it's just a case of people and knowing what they're going into. I know that when we played football, we didn't head a ball and worry about what the after effects of that would be. Usually for football, it's usually, oh, I might get a bit of backache, I might get a bit of legache. No one had really considered heading before. So I think if there is some research into it that proves there is a direct link, it might sort of put some people off participating in football. So you yeah. think football's heading towards a boxing sort of sport? In, in the, you know what you're getting into, and if you I want mean, to take part in it, I think it's a problem for all sports. I think before it was actually recognised as an industrial disease, it was actually called boxer's brain because of, obviously, punches to the head. Um, but I, I do think it's going to head that way if, if there is a direct link. You look at players renowned for heading the ball in our generation, the likes of John Terry, Peter Crouch, even someone like Harry Kane. We don't want to see them, them suffer with the problems that people like Nobby Styles and Sir Bobby Charlton have, have, have suffered with. I think that one thing that we could do now is potentially shift who's in charge of signaling when the medics are needed for a player that goes down with a head injury. So that control currently fully lies with the referee but please forgive me for bringing a boring example for this but can you remember back in January when Marcus Tavernier went on the floor after he had a clash of heads with a Birmingham player and that player continued for about 30 seconds to a minute longer and Birmingham actually had the ball in the back of the net by the time that the referee had whistled and had pulled it back for the head injury on Tavernier. At that point the medics had actually run onto the pitch because they realised it was a head injury and play was still continuing so I think there needs to be a change of dynamic as to who's in charge that I don't know who to for when the player goes down with a head injury because play can carry on as long as the referee doesn't whistle. 
and that needs to change if we're to tackle head injury seriously. All right, so for this week's feature, we're going to talk about some high-scoring games that we've been at following the fantastic FA Cup first-round match from Sunday, where sort of topsy-turvy game where Torquay and Crawley ended up finishing 6-5 to Crawley. I mean, just an interesting little stat. And I've done loads and loads and loads of research into this, but from the only research I, I can find, uh, the, the Crawley goalkeeper was down in, in the second half, and that ended up leading to 18 minutes of stoppage time. Crawley scored what they thought was the winner on 90 plus 18, which was the latest goal in English football from what I can research and find. They had that record for three minutes until Crawley, until Crawley equalised on 90 plus 21, which took the game to extra time. Ended up finishing 6-5. So my question to you is, what's the latest goal you've seen in the match? I don't think you're able to beat 90 plus 21. If you can, then my research obviously didn't take very long. And what's the highest scoring match you've been to? So I'll, I'll start. The latest goal I've seen personally is 90 plus 9, which was um, a Kane Hemmings penalty for Mansfield Town at Notts County. We were winning. Notts County were winning going in towards the late stage of the game. Louis Alessandro gave, gave a handball on the edge of the penalty area. Literally just put his arm out as far as he possibly could because he's stupid, obviously. And then he scored the resulting penalty on 90 plus 9. So that was a uh, thing I meant that the, the run from was not beating Mansfield extended to, I think, 15 years because of that, which is always good, isn't it? But um, some high scoring games I've personally been to. Um, I've seen a few 4-3s, 4-2s, 5-3s. I don't think I can actually beat a 5-3, though. I've seen Notts win 5-3 against Crawley, and I've seen them lose 5-3 at Aston Villa. The 5-3 win was in 2014. That's the last time that we scored a hat-trick in league football as well, six years ago, can you believe? That's how bad we've become. Um, and I probably also should mention a couple other ones I've got. Um, there was a game, I think, two years ago where Notts were 2 down at home to Exeter. Uh, Exeter scored a second on 88 but not scored a 92-93 to make it 2-2, which meant that Kevin Nolan remained unbeaten at home. And as much as I don't want to, Wes Morgan's got an absolute screamer at the edge of the area for Nottingham Forest. 120 plus three to finish 3-3 between Notts and Forest in the League Cup in 2011. And then they won on bloody penalties as well, didn't they? So thanks, Wes Morgan, for that. 120 plus three. Um, so I couldn't find a, an accurate number for the latest goal that I've can remember being a game going to, but the one that stood out when you asked me the question, it uh, was Mikel Antonio scoring uh, in, I believe it was the 94th minute uh, against Carlisle United. It was at Hillsborough. I was at the game. The score was 1-1 at the time. It was late April as well. And we was battling out for second place with Sheffield United. And we really needed a win to put the pressure on going into the last uh, couple of the games of the season, I believe it was. And uh, Mikel Antonio, he, he picked the ball up on the left-hand side. He drove at the right back. He got all the way to the byline. He then cut back and you think, what's he going to do? He's going to square it. He's going to chip it to the back post. He doesn't. He absolutely hammers it into the roof of the net. Fantastic finish. One of the most celebrated goals I've seen by myself, by everyone in the stadium. It was it was an unbelievable time. It shouldn't have counted, though. It shouldn't have though if he picked it up and drove with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the handball rule. It's changed that much, hasn't it? <laughs> Um, but as for high scoring games I was a bit worried about this one because I didn't think I'd have many high scorers but there was two 6 nils I can remember in the in the uh, 20 what, what year would that be it was, it was actually in 2017 actually there's not and a scientist I, or a mathematician <laughs> and uh, I was at the, I'll start with a better one and it was Sheffield Wednesday 5 Norwich 1 Jordan Rhodes scored a brace in that game I can remember Morgan Fox scored as well from a diving header from a corner uh, Cameron Jerome got the got the Norwich goal 
Um, and then we'll move on to the not so good one. Um, I think you'll remember it well. It was one of the first times I think we uh, spoke probably about football, which was Sheffield Wednesday to Sheffield United for not a nice one. So my latest ever goal seen live was actually a few seasons ago. I don't know if you remember it, but Jack Clark, when Borough played Leeds, went down injured for around uh, 12, 13 minutes. And it meant that when Leeds got a corner in the 90th plus 11th minute and Calvin Phillips headed into the back of the net. So that's the latest goal I've ever seen. Borough were winning 1-0 thanks to a Lewis Wing goal early in the second half, but Leeds got the equaliser in the 90th plus 11. That's the latest goal I've ever seen. Uh, Dan, I don't think we're likely for saying that my highest ever goal seen in a game was Borough 8, Man City 1. Yeah, a game that, I'm gutted. Yeah, <laughs> a game that you can probably imagine as being one of the high scorers that we're going to mention. But an Afonso Alves hat-trick. Stuart Downing showing that he was the answer to England's left-wing problem with two amazing goals. <laughs> and a fabulous free kick from Fabio Rockenbach in one of the best games that I've ever seen. Funny enough, we were relegated 12 months later in the same kit that we wore that day. But yeah. uh, that is the highest ever goal-scoring game I can remember. One final thing I want to mention is my first ever Borough game was Borough 3, Spurs 3. So six goals in your first game, that's not too bad. Is it an Iron Benny Yakubu brace? And listen to the names for Spurs. Robbie Keane, now an ex-Borough man as well. Jermaine Genus, who I don't think Adam likes for that uh, Salford commentary against Notts <laughs> County. And Meadow. Right. Yeah, so Borough Spurs was my first ever Borough game and six goals, not too bad for your first lot of 90 minutes. So for my latest goal that I've seen live, it came on the 22nd of August 2015 between Charlton and Hull. So Simon Mackinock gave Charlton the lead in the 59th minute and then Abel Hernandez equalised in the 89th minute. Don't worry, that's not my late goal. Um, <laughs> Charlton then took the lead on the 99th minute through Joey Goodmanson. In terms of the highest scoring ones, I've got I've got two for this. So probably one of the biggest games in Hull's history, Hull City 5, Sheffield United 3 in the FA Cup semi-final. And then we go to uh, a quite quite the opposite with Hull City 1, Tottenham 7. Uh, let's just go through the Tottenham goal scorers there. There's, there's, there's quite a lot. Um, Toby Aldevario, Ben Davis, Victor Wanyama, Deli Ali, And then Harry Kane got three, so... That took him to 29 goals in 30 Premier League games, which earned in the golden boot. Obviously, David Marshall was feeling quite generous in that game. Yeah, so obviously Sam mentioned for Borough what the latest goal was, and it was uh, Calvin Phillips's. However, the latest goal that I've seen scored for Borough was actually Adam Forshaw versus Reading in our promotion season. Uh, it was 90 plus four. And it, honestly, Sam, do you remember it? I do. The scrappiest of goals. And honestly, it was the scenes that went with it. I think it bounced off Adorma's head. Friend flew into a goalpost behind the goal. Um, it was just, it was ridiculous. It really was. I ended up about three rows down. And I think my brother was basically on the pitch. But, I mean, it, it was just ridiculous scenes and such an important goal in that season. Yeah, I remember someone behind me, Dan, sorry for cutting you off, fell down behind into the concourse after that goal was scored. It was such a great goal. I mean, we all like were looking at him saying, are you all right, mates? But then yeah. eyes were straight back on the pitch in, in scenes to celebrate. But uh, thankfully, he wasn't rushed to hospital, but it was such a great moment, wasn't it? Yeah, you see, Adam won't have that problem, can't he? Because if they scored a 94th minute winner to, to basically get promotion, they'd probably go, oh, well done. <laughs> Anyway, the highest scoring game, I believe, wasn't one for Borough because unfortunately since I sort of started getting a season ticket and stuff, I've had 
Karanka as a manager, I've had Pulis as a manager, and I've, I've had Warnock as a manager. So essentially, there's been one nils, two nils, and occasionally like a three-one or something like that. The highest scoring was Barca four, Sevilla two, and to be fair, it could have been a lot more than six goals as well because Messi set up one and scored one in the first twenty minutes and then went off injured. So God knows what the game would have been if he stayed on the pitch. I'm just going to have I'm going to have you a second, Dan, on um, on knots there. Can I just say the absolute scenes when Louis Alessandro scored ninety plus four, Notts County winning three one at Carlisle. I think you I think you might take it back there. The late goal and there were yeah, scenes yeah. as well. We were still yeah, celebrating. All fifty of us were up on our seats, were we? <laughs> you pies. <laughs> I know it's not strictly part of part of the rules, but it's my feature, so it's my rules, isn't it? I just want to mention two other games that we weren't at, but you probably won't remember because they involved lower league sides, but big scorers. Can anyone remember Tuesday, the twelfth of August, twenty fourteen, first round of the League Cup, Dagenham six, Brentford six. Does that spring back to anyone's memory? I would probably doubt it. No. Probably a topy turvy game, but Dan was your nana not there? <laughs> no, no, don't think so. <laughs> uh, and I got one more to mention. I'm not going to give you the scoreline. I'm going to say when the goals were scored first. It was Burton Albion versus Cheltenham, a League Two match from March 2010. Uh, the score was only two 0 to Burton at half time, and then goals on 54, 56, 58, 72 made it four three. And then Burton scored on 85 to make it five three after 85 minutes. Cheltenham scored 87, 90, and 90 plus four. So it finished Burton five, Cheltenham six. I think is quite a, quite a worthy mention as well. Well, that's it from us on the Rematch podcast this week. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Rematch Podcast to get involved. And also follow us on Spotify and iTunes to get alerted when the next episode goes live next week. 